0: Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. I love fireworks. Anybody here love fireworks? I love fireworks. I love the music that accompanies them. I love that anticipation as the sun is going down, dusk is happening, nightfall is upon us, but we all have to wait until we can see a star in the sky, until the sun's completely gone. I love the colors of the fireworks. I love the patterns. I don't know how all that science works. Ask Sergio. He probably knows. I love how they burst into different patterns with different colors. I love the really, really big ones. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? You hear a thump, and you know that it's been shot into the sky. Don't know how that works either. Ask Sergio. Shot into the sky. Sometimes you even see this little trail, and then it disappears. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you know This is going to be a big one. The longer you wait, the bigger it's going to be. And then all of a sudden, boom. this huge, loud thud. It hits you in the chest. Those are always my favorite ones that just smack you in the chest. I love that. Then there are those little poppers. Have you ever seen those little poppers? Little white poppers, usually wrapped up in this little white thing and throw them on the ground. And they pop, kind of snap. Um, I don't think the appropriate word for what they do is explode. They just kind of go, that's all. Um, sometimes they make a little light. Rarely do they. Um, usually, half of the box that you get this, uh, these poppers in, it has sawdust in it. And usually half of that box, uh, you throw them, and they end up being those proverbial duds that just don't really do anything. You're kind of looking, going, wait, I thought you were supposed to pop. And you think, oh, this is great. I've got fireworks in my hands, but then you throw them and nothing really happens. Fireworks on the one hand, little tiny poppers on the other hand. We much prefer the grandiose, the spectacular, the majestic, as opposed to the small, the insignificant, and the mundane. And the same is true not only with fireworks, but the way that we understand God's work in our lives. We much prefer the spectacular, The way that God works miraculously in our lives, where we can see it. Normally, though, in the life of the Christian, God's sovereignty is subtle, not spectacular. I prefer the spectacular, just like I prefer fireworks over little poppers. I prefer the spectacular. I prefer the book of Exodus, right? Red Sea parting, signs and wonders and miracles, ten plagues. That's what I want to see. But God has kindly given us the book of Ruth because Exodus is not the norm of the Christian life. Ruth is. One commentator says it this way, God's sovereignty works secretly and hiddenly. And the fact that God's sovereignty works secretly and hiddenly adds to its interest and mystique and should also be comforting to us. It's secret, it's hidden. Rarely is there supernatural fanfare. Rarely are there fireworks or spectacular displays of the miraculous. Rather, it's just simply the never-failing presence and providential hand of God quietly directing people and their circumstances in order to achieve His perfect purposes. I've never seen the Red Sea part. I've never seen the sun stand still, but I have witnessed God's miraculous providential hand in everyday affairs of my life. And you have too. You've seen God work miracles, just not in the way that we expect to see them. That's why I love the book of Ruth. There are so many places in the book of Ruth where God could have performed a miracle, right? We've already seen several of them. People have died in the book of Ruth, and God could have raised them from the dead, but He didn't. There's a famine in the book of Ruth. God could have dropped manna from heaven, but He didn't. Visions don't appear. Bushes don't burn, prophets don't speak. In fact, in the book of Ruth, God's voice is never even heard in the entirety of the book. He's silent from beginning to end, but that doesn't mean that He's not working. He's not absent, He's not uncaring for His people. And this is exactly how God most often works in the life of a believer. You think about the whole of the Bible. How many miracles do you think are in the Bible? Put a number in your mind. How many miracles do you think are in the Bible? Conservative estimates are around 180. Um, the higher end would be 250, and it's hard to figure that out. Do you, do you, you know, when Jesus heals the uh, 10 lepers, do you, do you count all of those as a miracle? Do you just lump that into one? So conservative 180, we'll, we'll go with the higher side, 250. 250 miracles in the entirety of the Bible as far as God breaking into Uh, time and space, and changing the laws that he uses to govern the world. 250. From Abraham to the apostles is about 2,000 years. So if you spread out those miracles evenly over the course of those years, it would be one miracle every eight years. One miracle every eight years. And obviously we know in the Bible they just kind of happen in bunches, right? You have Moses and a bunch of miracles happen. You have the prophets, a bunch of miracles happen. There's a lot of space in between where miracles aren't happening. Jesus obviously shows up, a bunch of miracles happen. Early church, a bunch of miracles happen. But miracles, by very definition, they have to be few and far between. Biblically, we see that as a reality, but they have to be few and far between for them to be truly miraculous. If they're happening all the time every day, you're just going to say, well, that's the ordinary, normal way God works. In the book of Ruth, we see God working miraculously, but not the way we tend to think with signs and wonders. It's not that God doesn't do miracles today. He does. But the miracles that He tends to do today are those mundane, providential workings of His sovereign will in everyday affairs of life. Not the spectacular. He does the spectacular. He still does that. That's why I love the book of Ruth. Miracles are meant to make us marvel at the mundane nature of them. The miracles that we see in Ruth are meant to make us marvel at how mundane they are. And yet God is not far from us. We left Naomi last week at the end of chapter 1 suffering. She's suffering. She sees that God has given her bitter circumstances. I don't believe personally that she is bitter. I think she is saying bitter circumstances, bad tasting circumstances. This is depressing stuff. I do think that she's been blinded. We talked about how suffering does blind you, and she's blinded. We're going to see that even today. She doesn't even realize that she has a relative that is back in Bethlehem that could potentially be the kinsman redeemer. She doesn't remember that. Even her response to Ruth today is one of blindedness. Her suffering has blinded her from seeing the providential care of God. And though we could just take chapter two as a whole, And some have, and I've done it in the past. Just preach all of chapter 2 in one sermon. I really want to stop and slow down. As you can see in your bulletin, we're only going to cover four short verses. But they are profound verses that we need to grasp the message of these verses for us today. So let's read them together. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, "'Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor.' And she said to her, "'Go, my daughter.' So she departed, and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she just so happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz.' who was of the family of Elimelech. Now Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Father, I pray that you would elongate our time, that you would take us deep into these verses, that we would walk away from here with conversations on our lips and meditations on our hearts based off of what you have to say to us this morning. Make us good at seeing your hand in our lives. Make us able to see it. May the, even the suffering that we're going through, God, enable us to not be blinded by it like Naomi was, but to see that you are working. And as you were working in chapter one, bringing about very difficult, bitter circumstances, now you are working in chapter two. You never stopped, but you're working in a, in a way in which you're bringing about a blessing, a good circumstance. And we see through the course of the book of Ruth that you used the bad circumstances to bring us to this place. So God, make us able to see those things in our own lives, to trace your hand, whether it's in suffering or in the good times. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It just so happened, verse three, it just so happened that Ruth goes into the field of Boaz. It just so happened. Some translations, and by luck or per chance, I want us to look this morning at three ways in which it just so happened to work out for Ruth and Naomi. Three ways in which it just so happened. We're gonna use the language of luck, even though we know there's no such thing as luck. We're gonna use that language to remind us of the way that the author is speaking of these things. They just so happened. It was lucky by chance that Ruth decided to do this. It was a lucky guess by chance that she decided to do this. Three ways that it just so happens to work out for Ruth and Naomi. Way number one, the luck of a lineage. The luck of a lineage. This is verse one. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. This is a very interesting verse, because if you go back up to the previous verse, and remember, no chapter divisions in the original. If you go back up to the previous verse, verse 22, so Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabite Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Barley harvest is late April, early May, but if you read that verse and you skip verse one of chapter two, it reads much better. It's a much more fluid uh, interaction with those verses. Naomi returned with her, with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law. They returned from the land of Moab. They come to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest and then drop down to verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, please let me go to the field. Let me glean. Verse 1 is a strange verse. It kind of jars us. The, the fluid motion from the end of chapter 1 to chapter 2 is broken. So why is it here? It's here because the author is saying, make note of this. Take a look at this. Keep your eye on this guy. You need to have Boaz's mind in your, uh, uh, Boaz's name in your mind. You have to remember him. What he's about to do is profound. So I want you to, to grab hold of his name and remember it. That's what he's doing in the words of uh, you know, our common vernacular. He's giving us a spoiler alert, right? He's saying, spoiler alert, something's about to happen, but I don't want you to miss it because Naomi missed it. Ruth doesn't even know what's happening, but I don't want you to miss it as the reader. The storyteller's craft here involves us in the bigger picture of the story. And so he says, there's a man whose name is Boaz. He's of the family of Elimelech, and he's a kinsman of Naomi's husband. Let's start with his name, Boaz. Boaz means strength of character, strong In him there is strength, mighty one. When Solomon was building the temple, he named one of the pillars of the temple Boaz, strength. So his name means strong. What about his relationship? The author gives us his relationship. He is of the family of Elimelech. So he's either a brother of Elimelech, an uncle of Elimelech, a cousin of Elimelech, or a nephew of Elimelech. That's kind of all we have. He's a family, he's a related family member. That word kinsman, a kinsman of her husband in verse one, that word kinsman can either be a personal friend or a close relative. And we're gonna to come to understand it's a close relative. Jewish tradition passed down that from the rabbis that Boaz is the nephew of Elimelech. So we can go with that. He's a nephew, somehow related to this family. And then let's look at his reputation. We see his name, we see his Relationship. What's his reputation? Verse one, he is a man of great wealth. That's what my Bible says, a man of great wealth. That word is used in Hebrew to speak of three different things. So the first is a warrior, Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. This word is used to refer to a valiant warrior, 2 Samuel 17, verse 8, a mighty man of war. And even in Judges chapter 6 with Gideon, the valiant warrior, when uh, the Lord first visits Gideon and he says, Gideon, uh, a valiant warrior of God. That's the same word that's used here. So it could be warrior. It also can be translated to mean good character, excellent character. Turn to chapter 3, verse 11. In chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz says, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. That word excellence is the exact same Hebrew word that's used in chapter chapter 2, verse 1, a man of great wealth. So it could be translated a man of great excellence, good character. The word is also used in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10, to speak of the woman who has excellent character. So it could be a strong warrior, could be a man of great character, and finally, it could be wealthy. 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 20, it's used to speak of a man of great wealth. So we can have one of those three. I don't think we need to land on one of those. I think we can say it's probably all three. We know that he's wealthy, we also know that he's a man of great character. And maybe he's a warrior as well. Some people take from this that he was one of Gideon's 300 men that fought with him. So he's a worthy man. He's an amazing man. And he's single. Mark that down. He's single. It's very interesting because remember the time frame that we are living in in the book of Ruth. These are the days of judges. I wonder if he's single because he is a man of worthy character. I wonder if he's single because there are things that he will not do. There are things that he will not say. There are business practices that he refuses to be a part of. And I wonder if that's kind of made him an outcast. Whatever the reason, he is single. And that's a very good thing for us. He's single. He is, if you want to put it again in our common vernacular, Boaz is the dude of dudes. This guy, this is the the friend that you want to have. This is the man among men, Boaz. So we have the luck of a lineage. Who knew that Boaz was going to show up on the scene. Who knew that it just so happens that Elimelech has a relative whose name is Boaz? Who knew? Naomi doesn't remember that. It's going to take her a while before her memory is jogged such that she remembers, ooh, this guy could be an answer to our prayers. The second thing is we have to see the amazing, amazing luck, not only of a lineage, but we also have the amazing luck of the law. The amazing luck of the law. This is verse 2, the amazing luck of the law. God made a law in Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 through 10 that had to do with this practice called gleaning. He made this hundreds of years before, and we're going to show up in the book of Ruth where this law is going to come into play. It just so happens this is a law that God made that's going to pertain to this moment. Verse 2, Ruth, the Moabitess, again, she's referenced as the Moabitess, Why say that she's a Moabite woman? Well, she's not from around here, ethnically different. She's an outcast. Nobody would really be taking care of her. And she probably doesn't understand or know the customs of the land. She's going to have to figure this out through Naomi. And again, Naomi is blind to this. Naomi's blind to what could potentially happen through her daughter-in-law. So Naomi is speaking to Ruth, and Ruth says to her, Please let me go into the fields and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. To glean, God had commanded that those who were working the ground worked all of it, but left some of it behind for the poor. The poor would work. They would take some of the food home for themselves and their family. So you would do, if you owned a field, you were well off, you would go glean in every part of the field, but you'd leave the the location on the outskirts of that field. You would just glean it and you'd leave it there. You'd purposefully leave some left behind. This was kind of the welfare system that God had designed. He knew that people were going to be in need and you wanted to give to the needy. Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 through 10 says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Leave them for the poor, for the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. What God is saying is I want you and your practices to reflect my heart and my character. I take care of the outcast. I want you to take care of the outcast. So he made a law that we would call the law of gleaning. And so Ruth says, according to this law that your God has made, that is now my God, can I go out and glean? Naomi, we don't have food. Naomi, we're going to die. What can I do to help? Can I at least go into the fields? Can I find some field, grab some food, and take it back? She says, go, my daughter. Again, we don't know the inflection with which she says those words. But I think that she's still despairing, struggling, so she just says go. She doesn't say find somebody that maybe could marry you. She doesn't say find some relative of our family. She just says go, go do it. But Ruth says at the end of her statement, let me go glean after one in whose sight I may find favor. That word favor, it's used three times in this book. It's a word that means grace, that I might find grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. I'm not going to be able to get food based on my merit, my deserving, my abilities. I'm going to have to get food based on somebody else's kindness. And that's going to come back into play as well over and over through this book. So we have the luck of a lineage. We have the luck of a law. It just so happened. There was a law that God made from hundreds of years before, and now it's here. It's coming into play here in such a way that Ruth is going to meet Boaz through this specific law. Number three, and finally, we have the luck of a location. The luck of a location. Luck of a lineage, luck of a law, and luck of a location. Verse three, so she departs, and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. So the reapers are gleaning. She falls behind them. Anything that they drop, she just gathers up. And she just so happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. This is where the author is saying, hey, remember what I said in verse 1? Spoiler alert. Remember that guy? Let me remind you again, he's of the family of Elimelech. That's hugely hopeful for us. She just so happened. My Bible says she just so happened. Some translations, as luck would have it, and perchance. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says her chance chanced upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Her chance chanced. The author is trying with a tongue-in-cheek expression here to say her chance chanced. It was a lucky thing. But why would he say it that way? Is it luck? Does the author believe in coincidence? Does the author believe in chance? I don't think that he does. We know that pagans think this way. Just write down 1 Samuel 6, verse 9. 1 Samuel Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. They take it, a lot of bad things start to happen to them because they have the Ark of the Covenant. And they think, uh, not in terms of God directing things, but in terms of fate, chance, coincidence, and luck. And so they say this in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Watch. If he goes up, they, they attach the Ark of the Covenant to these cows, and they say, let's watch. Because if the cows go up by the way of its own territory to Beit Shemesh, then God has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it wasn't his hand that struck us. It happened by chance. So they attach the Ark of the Covenant to the cows and they say, we don't know what's going on here, but based on the direction that they take, we'll know if uh, by chance this was evil done to us or by chance this is just something bad that happened, but it wasn't from the hand of God. The pagans think in terms of chance that it just so happens. But this is not the way that the Jews think. Just write down Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. Some of you have that verse memorized. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision, whether it's game night on Friday night at the Regan's house, and you're rolling a dice and it's falling, or whether it's a lot that was cast into a lap to make a decision in the Old Testament of whose property was gonna be devoted to whom. No matter what it is, God is the one that governs and ordains it. So Jews don't think in in terms of luck. So why would a Jewish author, perhaps even Samuel himself, why would he say, her chance chanced upon this field? It just so happened, by luck. That's beautiful, poetic, ironic, amazing rhetorical language. I believe that if this is Samuel, he is smiling as he writes this. He's smiling as he writes, and it just so happened, by chance, she went to Boaz's field. She just randomly picks a field, and fields weren't uh, fenced off. You couldn't do that. You had to let the poor people into your field, so you couldn't fence them off. Sometimes they weren't even delineated. Sometimes they were delineated by a rock, that if the field grows over the rock, you don't even know where the rock is. There's no location. She's not walking by saying, this field looks good. That person's field doesn't look good. That person's field looks like Patrick's side yard that hasn't been mowed in 38 years with weeds and let's not go there. She doesn't know. She's just walking. We don't know how far she walked. We don't know why she picked this field. We don't know who was working in that field. We just know that there are workers. Why does she pick this one? This is why the author says, by chance, just good luck that she picked this. Is it good luck? Remember, the question is, where has God been in all of this? He could have raised people from the dead. He could have sent manna from heaven. She had uh, 10 years of not being able to conceive, and God could have brought about the miracle of conception. Where's God been in all of this? And this is the answer in verse 3. God's been right in the middle of it. God's been directing, purposing, ordaining. He's been directing every single step that Ruth has been taking. So it's true. The song that we sing with our little kids, he's got the whole world in his hands, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's right in the middle of everything that's happening. Or to say it in the words of Paul, from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. He's got it all in His hands. When I was growing up, uh, my family very into the Anne of Green Gables movies. That's why, when I was a kid, and I found somebody who I thought was going to be my best friend, I said, "We're going to be bosom buddies." And they thought I was really weird when I said that. And I said, you're really weird because you've never seen Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> and they said, what's that? And I said, yep, you're weird. And um, Anne of Green Gables is a story where Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert are uh, trying to get a young man to help in the fields, to help work and till the soil and work in the, in the farm. And so they write uh, to this place it was sending out people to give workers. They want a young man to come out and work and they end up getting this little girl, redhead little girl with pigtails. And Matthew loves her, falls in love immediately. says, come work. Mar- Marilla's, no, we needed a young man. Take her back. The story, they all just end up loving each other. It's an amazing story. And when Matthew and Marilla take Anne back to the railroad station uh, to go away to school, Matthew says these words, we didn't even want her. Wow, we sure were lucky. She wasn't the person that we expected. We didn't even want her. And now we're having trouble saying goodbye. Man, we were lucky that we got her. And Marilla says, it wasn't luck that brought her to us, Matthew. It was providence. It wasn't luck. It was providence. Is it luck that Ruth just happens to find this field? No, it's providence. What is providence? I'm glad you asked. The Heidelberg Catechism says, What do you mean by the providence of God? It is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and He governs heaven and earth and all creatures so that the herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink health and sickness, riches and poverty. Yes, all things come not by chance but by His fatherly hand. Thomas Watson says it this way, providence is God's ordering all issues and all events of everything in the world after the counsel of His own will to His own glory. In creation, God brings everything into existence. In providence, God preserves everything that He made and He directs and He governs them all to ensure that all the purposes that He has for them come to pass. Let me give you just a couple of verses. This is everywhere in the Bible. Psalm 135, verses five through seven. The psalmist writes, I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes the lightning for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his own treasuries. And on and on the descriptions go. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? He accomplishes it. Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, we have attained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And as Marty said this morning in our Sunday school time from the book of Job, nobody can thwart his hand. He is the one Who ordains, governs, allows. And we saw last week, he allows difficult circumstances. He does. He is sovereign over suffering. But as we see this week and through the remainder of our study, he's also the God of the good circumstances that brings about the good things. As we said last week, the same Lord that takes away is the same Lord who gives. So the reason that the author uses this this word chance is to show that there is no human involvement whatsoever. No human involvement. This is not a scheme of Ruth. Ruth is not saying, okay, I know that Boaz is of the family of Elimelech. I have to find his field. I have to work there. I've got a plan. I'll marry him. None of that. There's no human intention here whatsoever. She's just having to go out and work in the fields to provide food. This so-called accident of just so happening to fall into this field is ordained by God. There's subtle beauty in the ordinary circumstances of life that God is working even when we don't see it. But here's my question to you. Do you work hard to see His working in your life? Do you work hard to see the ways in which it has just so happened in your life that you are where you are today? It just so happened that I was born in California. could have been born anywhere. It just so happened that I grew up in an amazing church, preached the gospel, I got saved. It just so happened that my dad decided to pursue sin, and in pursuing sin, we ended up moving churches from a very solid church to another solid church, but just smaller. And at that church, it just so happened that my wife happened to go to that church. just so happened that I was timid. I didn't want to go to the youth group, and so for almost a year of that new church experience, it just so happened that I decided I'm not going to go to youth group, and it just so happened on the first Wednesday night that I went to the youth group. I show up, and the worship leader for the youth group said, this is my last day, and I'm moving." We had a big celebration. I didn't even know the person, and we prayed, Lord, would you raise up somebody to start singing in their place? It just so happened a couple weeks before, one of my best friends said, I play guitar. Do you? And I said, nope, but I'd love to learn, and I started playing four chords. It's kind of all you need sometimes for worship music. It just so happened that I began leading the worship through song, not only in the youth group, but sometimes in the main service, And I led with a man who would eventually become the producer of a record that I made with a bunch of friends. And stick with me here. The bunch of friends that I had got connected through this record that was made, through the producer of the record. They started putting on this conference called Resolve Conference that many of you went to, that many of you know about. They started a band called Enfield. And the man that I started doing music with that I introduced to these men, that man ended up producing their record and got them connected with a man named Bob Coughlin. And many of the songs that we sing today, we do the uh, arrangement of them because of my friends that just so happened to to be connected with this producer that got them involved in the Resolve conference, that got them introduced to Bob Coughlin, and now they're actually uh, just flew back from meeting with Bob for their next record. Just so happened that the songs that we sing and the arrangements, one of the songs we sang today was written and arranged by my friends that worked with this producer that I just so happened to start leading music with. Just so happened when I was in high school. I was produ- pursuing baseball, as my career, and I broke my thumb. And it just so happened that when I broke my thumb and I was out for six to eight weeks, that I decided I don't wanna go play baseball right now. I broke my thumb, I wanna take a break, I'm tired, might as well just get plugged into my church. Went on a missions trip. Just so happened that it coincided with a missions trip. Went on a missions trip, and I was able to preach at a school that it just so happens that the missionaries that we support in the Philippines, it was that school that I was preaching at. It just so happens that as I got plugged into ministry, I realized this is something that I really want to do for the rest of my life. just so happened that my best friend at that church had a sister. Nobody really knew about her. But as I was hanging out with my best friend at the church, I got to know her. And I fell in love with her. And it just so happened that we were able to get married a few years after that. We'll be celebrating 10 years in June. just so happened. It just so happened that when I went to college, I was a double major in Bible and business and my advisor was an English major. Why? Even he, when I showed up, he said, what's your major? I said, oh, I'm double majoring in business and Bible. He said, why are you here? I said, I don't know. I was given your name. So, why are you double majoring? I said, well, I have some credits under my belt. I figure I can enjoy four years, go at a slower pace, get two majors. Well, what, are, what are the majors, Bible and business? Okay, why both of those? Well, because I figure I love ministry and I want to be a pastor. But if it doesn't work out, I'll have a fallback into business. And it just so happened that this counselor that didn't know me from Adam, shouldn't have ever had me, said to me, do you not believe God's plan for your life? Why do you need a fall back if you believe God's call, called you to pastoral ministry? You don't need a fall back. Are you trusting the Lord? I thought, well, I, maybe I'm not. I don't know. I'll pray about it. He said, let's pray, let's pray, let's get together. And it just so happened that as I left his office, and was walking back to my dorm room, I got a call from my mom, and she said, your dad just lost his job. We're not going to be able to pay for four years of college. we got to figure out how to do this in three years. And I said, well, let's drop one of the majors, shall we? (laughs) As if this is a sign from the Lord, let's drop a major. Let's go for Bible. Let's not have a fallback. It just so happened that we planted a church at the exact moment Decided, we've got to figure out where we're going to plant the church. Let's go to Northridge, because we had a lot of families involved in Northridge. Let's see if Heritage would rent out their gym. They rent out their campus up in Rinaldi. Let's see. And it just so happened that the morning that my mom called Heritage to just ask, do you rent out, I'm sure you probably already do, to a church in the, in the gym? They said, we just finished a committee meeting this morning, And voted on starting to advertise our gym to be used and leased by churches. You were the first person to call us. We'll go with that. Just so happened. Just so happened that I, me, was coaching football. Now, if that's not the irony of ironies, (laughs) I'm coaching football with our brother Paul Hodgson. Just so happens that um, Damien's on the other field. Just so happens that Paul and Damien get connected. Just so happens that Damien hears the gospel through Paul Hodgson and gets baptized. I had the privilege of baptizing Damien. Just so happens he's the first person at CBC that got saved and got baptized in our church. And it just so happens as I'm coaching football, for I don't know what purpose I'm out there for, just so happens as I'm coaching football that the principal comes up to me and says, Hey, there's a guy that was doing part time Bible teaching, two 10th grade classes. He can't come back would you ever be interested in teaching Bible classes? I thought, sure, we'll see. We're at the baby stage of a church. I have a little bit of time. Let's see what happens. It just so happens that a student in that first semester of me teaching, a student had a mom. I did not know this until we were actually at Children's Hospital. A student had a mom, and the mom's job was overseeing the cardiology department at Children's Hospital. And it just so happened that when my son had open-heart surgery... Several years after that semester of teaching that I met this woman, and I said, you look very familiar, and she said, where would I know you from? Teach at Heritage, you taught my daughter. And it just so happened that she just sat down and wept with us and prayed with us and said, God's going to take care of you. And it just so happened that I had many students over the years, and they started inviting family members to our church, and it just so happens that one of those family members of two students that I had, Cindy and Christina, their brother, Mr. Sergio over here, just so happens to start coming to our church. And now, because of teaching at Heritage, because of coaching football at Heritage, for I don't know what reason, because of planting the church when we did at Heritage, the way in which we did, because of go all the way back, now Sergio is going to soon be brought on as an elder of our church and jump in as an answer to prayer for Tim leaving. Brothers and sisters, there are no coincidences in life. There's no luck. There's no just per chance. And I want to plead with you today. Rarely, if ever, do I give you homework. I'm giving you homework today. Go home and make a list of the just so happens in your life. Just look back on how God has brought you to where he has you today, and it will blow your mind. It's astounding to see. We struggle with God being too small in our vision and us just being too big. Just look back on the just so happens in your life and God will become huge and you'll shrink down to the right size. God is working. Trace how he is working even in the mundane moments of your life. Now, we're not finished. Verse four. Let's get to know Boaz a little bit. Boaz, behold. Now behold, that's a very important Hebrew word to say. This is surprising, and it's surprising because it just so happens that Boaz is going to show up. He wasn't there. He decides to show up at this exact moment when Ruth is there. It just so happens. We're going to catch the rest of the story next week of how he interacts with Ruth, but let's just meet this man. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to his workers, the reapers, may the Lord be with you. These are the first words that we hear from Boaz. Remember Ruth's first words? Very important words when she says, that, your God, my God, your people, my people. Look at Boaz's first words. He says, may the Lord be with you. This is not a common greeting in a Jewish culture. What's the common greeting in Jewish culture? Shalom, it's peace be with you. This isn't peace be with you. This is may the Lord himself be with you. And the word Lord is in all capital letters. That means may Yahweh be with you. The covenant-keeping God be with you. Remember God's covenant. This is what Boaz is saying in this greeting. Remember God's covenant. He's not neglected it. He's not forsaking us. Even with 10 years of famine in the rearview mirror, we know our God is good and he's not forsaking us. Don't forget, these are the days of the judges where every man does that which is right in their own eyes. And Boaz says, let's do what's right in God's eyes. May God be with you. May God be with you. Ultimately, Jesus is the answer to that prayer, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Boaz says, may the Lord be with you. What he's saying is, I hope you sense the presence of God today. I hope you sense his presence. He's always within earshot. He's always working. Even when you think he's far away, he's right there. And I hope you sense his presence as you're working. And look for his hand in your work. And they all say, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord bless you. Boaz's first recorded words reveal nothing less than a passionate belief that God is not only worth following, he is worth talking about and thinking about all throughout the day. So we have the luck of a lineage. It just so happens that Elimelech has a relative who's a man that's going to end up being the kinsman redeemer in the story. It just so happens by luck that there's a law that enables Ruth without trespassing, without stealing to go into Boaz's field and glean. And it just so happened by luck that she picked Boaz's field. It just so happened. The Lord does all of it. The Lord directs it all. As we close, I want to share the story of a pastor. You are probably familiar with the name Kent Hughes. He's a pastor in Wheaton, Illinois. He wrote this. Some years ago, his wife Barbara checked into the hospital to undergo a very simple, routine surgical procedure. While she was in surgery, Kent waited patiently in the lobby. During that time he was greeted by a friend of his wife's niece, a young girl named Suzanne. Suzanne hardly knew who Barbara was. She didn't even know that she was in surgery. Suzanne was just a lab technician in the hospital who rarely, if ever, even walked through the waiting room in the hospital. After a brief conversation, she wished Kent and his wife the best and went on her way. A few hours later, the doctor came in told Kent that the surgery went well and that he'd be able to see his wife in about two hours. So Kent went home really quickly to grab some things and came back. When he arrived back at the hospital, he found his daughter was there completely distraught, only to discover that Barbara had been rushed back into surgery because she had started hemorrhaging and the doctors did not know why. This went on for five and a half hours late into the night. Finally, after doing everything that they could to try and stop the bleeding, without any success, the doctors closed Barbara back up, and at 2 a.m. in the morning, the the entire pastoral staff showed up at the hospital to pray and uphold the family as Barbara continued to hemorrhage. The doctors continued to replace her blood, but they could not find any way to make the bleeding stop. On the morning of the next day, with the family still gathered in the waiting room, Suzanne walked by altogether unaware of what had transpired through the night. She was simply coming to bring Barbara some magazines to read. When she noticed that the family was gathered together in a crisis moment, it dawned on her, this is probably not the most appropriate time for me to be here, so she quietly turned to walk away. When she heard these words from Kent's associate pastor, Kent, you need to go in to encourage Barbara. She knows that her blood is not clotting, and she knows that if if her blood does not clot, she will die. Suzanne heard that little phrase, her blood is not clotting. And Suzanne's memory went back 10 years earlier when she was in med school with Barbara's niece. One evening while they were in the lab with nothing else to do, out of sheer boredom, they decided to take each other's blood tests. And in doing so, they found out that Barbara's niece had a rare condition that prevented her blood from clotting properly. So Suzanne ran back into her lab looked up the data on Barbara's niece, printed it out, ran it to the nurse overseeing Barbara's care. The nurse looks at it, takes it to the surgeon. He in turn has it immediately sent to the pathologist who compares Barbara's blood to the blood condition of her niece. He determines the exact, they have the exact same blood problem and orders a course of treatment that saves Barbara's life. It just so happened that 10 years earlier, two medical students were so bored with their work that they did blood work on each other. Who does that? It just so happened that one of the same lab technicians who were so bored that day would walk through a waiting room that she never walks through on the day that Barbara and Kent were there. It just so happened that the same young girl returned the next morning at the exact time that the associate pastor spoke those words. If she had not heard those words, she would have just left. Oh, something's wrong, some complications. I'm just going to leave. She didn't think it was appropriate to be there, but she heard those words. Her blood isn't clotting. And it just so happened that her memory was sufficiently jogged to go back 10 years to recall that moment and think, I wonder if she has the same blood clotting problem. There is no fate. Brothers and sisters, there are no coincidences, no accidents that befall us. Nothing just so happens. So what do we do with this? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We trust the Lord with all of our hearts. We don't lean on our own understanding. In all of our ways, we acknowledge him and we know that he will direct our paths. So we trust his heart. We know that he's good and we trace his hand. We look to trace his hand in every single aspect of our lives. We trust his heart and we trace his hand. What is he up to? What's he been doing that's brought us to this moment? What might he have for us? Trust his heart. And trace his hand. Father, we thank you so much for the book of Ruth. And we admit that as we look back on our own lives, we see there are so many ways that you have worked that we've missed. And maybe even sometimes you were working and we said it was bad. There were bitter circumstances, and they are. But we failed to remember your good purposes through the bitter circumstances. We were blinded, just like Naomi. And so, Father, as we conclude our time together this morning, we do so with confession. We need you to help us to see these things. We need you not just to be our right standing before the Father, but we need you to be able to walk with joy through the midst of bitter circumstances. We need you to enable us to go back and to see the work that you're doing, And so we come before you now thanking you that you are bigger than we could possibly imagine. You have plans beyond our wildest dreams. And we just see a taste of that this morning. But Father, I pray that as we go from here, we would go in a spirit of humility, of confession, of a genuine desire to see how you have worked in the past and to trust your hand and to trace your heart and your hand working for us, for our good, for your glory in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. Lord, we need you. And that is our prayer now as we come before you. Amen.